What if everything you're searching for is already inside of you? Hi, I'm Cassandra Goodman, and I believe that true power comes from staying connected to who we really are at our core. This is a podcast about what it means to stay true to ourselves and why authentic leadership is such tricky business. You'll hear inspiring real life stories from big hearted leaders. I hope these stories help you to remember that true power comes from within. Okay, so here I am today uh, having a conversation with the lovely Dr. Chelsea Hay. Welcome, Chelsea. Thanks so much, Cassandra. It's really nice to join you. So, um, Chelsea, you are a qualitative and behavioral insights researcher and an ocean swimmer. You've shared that having previously pursued a career in academia at the University of Oxford, you've made the leap and moved across the planet here to Australia in pursuit of a more balanced and fulfilling path. And Chelsea and I met at an event I was running just, was it last week or the week before in Sydney, um, speaking about tree confidence and as I do in my presentations, I always ask the audience to share their thoughts. And Chelsea was the first one to put her hand up and grab the microphone and to share her thoughts on the question I asked about confidence. And as you were talking, I thought, Chelsea, you're my kind of person. I'd like to get to know you better. And you kindly accepted my invitation to come along today. So thank you so much and welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity and um, yeah, the kind of conversation that was started at that event. Um, you know, the ideas that you were sharing, particularly around, you know, speaking to the inner child, dealing with, um, you know, the uh, trials, I think, of overcoming those interior voices, those internal kind of negative voices um, that we carry from childhood um, really resonated uh, with, with me regarding, you know, my, my career path, um, my, I suppose, my, my, my path through uh, dealing with ambition um and um and, and kind of processing um a, a lifetime of uh, overachievement <laughs> which was not um which was not conducive to a happy person um it was conducive to a successful one but um how how the how to marry those two things has been something that's been uh you know the the goal for me the last couple of years um, and I think a huge amount of what you what you speak about, what you spoke about um, when we met is about, you know, being true um, and that authenticity um, can come at the cost of things that you might have thought you wanted. Um, but the benefits of that of that honesty with yourself um, are, yeah, in their own way, I think. Um, a kind of success. So I think a large part of that conversation for me is also about reshaping what success means. Mm, yeah, so much of this is about reshaping, rethinking, reimagining success. I love how you describe that. And, you know, probably myself also identifying as a, as a high achiever and in so many of the leaders I work with, many of the folks that make it to the upper echelons of academia or the business world or government are high achievers, right? And um, this challenge with being a high achiever is this challenge that it's never enough. Absolutely. 
It never feels like enough. You know, I often refer back to that greatest showman, you know, that beautiful ballad, never enough. All the stars in the sky will never be enough. And yeah, I, I really can relate to a lot of what you shared about redefining success and about this key insight that enoughness is not something we can ever achieve. Enoughness is something you must learn how to recognize as innate, innate in us. So, yes. Um, I, and I, I think feel- that comes from being comfortable with yourself, recognizing the things that actually make you happy and comfortable um, and make you feel well. Um, and sometimes that, that thing can be walking away from something that you thought you wanted your whole life, um, which is, um, which is an, it's, a, it's a, a really difficult process. Um, it takes a lot of, um, you know, difficult conversations with yourself, um, I think, and difficult conversations with, you know, the, the little, you know, the, the small person inside you, the child inside you, um, you know, the, the little girl who wanted to, you know, be a professor or, you know, go to the moon. <laughs> yeah. Um, as well as the person that you, that you are and the person that you're going to be. Um, Judith Butler writes about um mourning um and, and in the con- the context of the of the piece violence mourning politics she's writing about um the AIDS crisis and the loss of so many people in the 80s and then also the way that we kind of fail to grieve um unmournable bodies um you know people uh the people you know like the people who were lost in, in the Mediterranean um over the last week um and she writes really beautifully um and and I've, I've <laughs> Um, I remember speaking to her and saying, yeah, you know, this piece really resonated with me, but on a very personal level rather than on the kind of macro political level that she was actually writing about. When someone, when someone dies or when something like leaves your life, you're also grieving the person that you thought you were going to be. Mm. Um, you know, so if, if that's, um, you know, if you make a, a radical change in your life path, you go through a process of grieving. Um, where you say goodbye to the person, you know, to the future person um, that you anticipated being, um, and uh, and so I think that 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 process, I think about that that process in those terms, um, that way, that method of going through and saying goodbye to someone um, who will never exist, um, and and in that process, you know, the you know the, the stages of grieving. Um, also saying hello to someone who will who will be there and you know the new person emerging from that uh that death <laughs> mm. uh, experience mm. that's a beautiful way of describing it I've never thought about that that grieving for the person that we thought we were going to become but but who was never really us and you know for so many leaders and people I think um we we don't find the courage to make those difficult choices. We hold the path because I think for so many, there's this terror and it really is a terror. But if I'm not that thing, if I'm not a high achiever, then who the heck am I? And it's really an identity crisis because we become, we, we've confused who we really are with these identities um, that we've crafted for ourselves, so carefully crafted over so many years. And, and 
what we fail sometimes I think to realize is that that identity we've so carefully crafted was never who we really really are but yet for so many there's a real terror of letting go of that persona that personality that whatever you call it you know this facade really because we 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 really believe that there's nothing else we have to offer the world and that's why so many for very legitimate reasons I think resist these 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 crossroads we find ourselves on and I had a a beautiful conversation last week with someone who said we're carpeting over the crossroads we keep putting carpet over the crossroads because to take a crossroad is so scary and so Mm -hmm. I, I, so let, let's then move, maybe move into this key question that I know, Chelsea, you've been reflecting on. And, and if you might be willing to share with us a moment in your life when you knew you were not being true to yourself. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've alluded to this a little bit in this conversation. Um, but it was the moment when I decided to leave academia. Um, I was not going to pursue uh, a postdoc. Um, I was not going to become an ECR, an early career researcher. Um, I was going to throw caution to the wind, um, move to the other side of the planet um, and try something else. And that was very not me. Um, I had been on a uh, scholarship train (laughs) for a long time um, that I felt I couldn't get off of. Um, So my uh, my honours funding um, with the Mandela Rhodes Institute, uh, Mandela Rhodes Foundation rather, um, rolled into Uh, my master's funding at the University of York and then that rolled into uh, PhD or DPhil PhD funding um, at Oxford and um, it just felt very natural that I just kept winning (laughs) Um, scholarships opportunities uh, grants um, you know travel bursaries etc and um, it stopped being about what what I wanted and started being about what made sense um and sometimes those things aren't the same thing um and I am a very ambitious person um I know it's not a very attractive thing to say um in this in this climate in this world um and and it was very hard to have the conversation with myself and say I'm going to get off the train and I'm going to try a different road <laughs> or a different mode of transport <laughs> um, and a different lifestyle. And for the first time in my life, um, and it's been a year now uh, for me, for the first time in my life, I, or two years, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a couple of years uh, since I walked away um, and I don't work on weekends. Um, and um, to some extent, you know, I don't take my work home with me. Um, in the same way that I used to. The privileges of academia are that you can work whenever, wherever, um, but that means that you're always working. You don't really go on holiday, you're always thinking. Um, You're always turning it over, turning the questions over. Um, So I'd had a moment in, it was during the pandemic, um, and um, you referenced my podcast and I was um, commissioning a short um, kind of vlog series and just trying to keep the train going um, on a series of projects and, and things that I'd had planned to have to do in person, run conferences, etc. Um, and I was I was like a duck um, 
on water just frantic underneath, but trying to seem calm despite the pandemic happening. Um, and um, I, hit a, I hit a rough spot um, and went back into therapy, back on um, SSRIs. Um, and it took about nine months for the therapy and the meds to work. And then I realized that I was going to be unhappy for the rest of my life mm. if I kept trying to be perfect and kept trying to get everything right. Um, because you can never, one thing is that it's an industry in which you can never get everything right. You can't climb to the top of the hill um, because there's always another mountain. There's always another, there's always another application. Um, and, and I think that is true of so many things, but when you're in that space, you think it's the only one. So it's certainly the case that you're, you're facing this hill. Um, and you're like, if I get to the top of that, then it's, then I'm done, but you're never done. And that's, that's, I'm sure that lots of your listeners can, um, uh, relate to that regardless of industry. Um, and so I said to myself, I'm going to go back to the bottom of the hill, but I'm picking a different hill in a different country. <laughs> um, and my partner and I actually moved to Cape Town um, and spent about a year there. And then we moved to Australia. And, um, and I've changed industries. Um, I work in you know, insights, market research now. Um, and the work is totally different. The projects are much quicker. Um, you, know, you don't spend three years writing a book. <laughs> um, and it's been, a sea change but that period you know mid-pandemic where I was so committed to staying the course because uh, because you know I'd, I'd thrown all that time into it um you know it's some cost fallacy like I've got I've come so far I can't walk away um you can you can walk away at any time um and it's really it's really empowering to know that mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Chelsea. I mean, that's incredibly moving um, that we are choiceful, you know, that we are empowered, even though it does feel like, as you say, we, we've invested so much in so many ways that kind of messes with our psychology, right, to, to make us feel like we don't actually have a choice to take a different path do or to do a complete u-turn um you know it's so easy to convince ourselves that we've just got to hold the course and often you know in my coaching sessions when people really start to share the the reality of their inner worlds this is so much the the inner dialogue right that I just need to kind of soldier on I've got to hold the course um I just need to work harder at, you know, keeping my shit together basically and um, get through this. And um, often there's a whole different range of options available to us that are completely invisible until we open our thinking and take care of those parts of ourselves as you're doing so beautifully, Chelsea, that, that are absolutely terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think for me one of the things that made it easier to to do that was um, I had a series of conversations with a friend about sport. We'd never, she and I had never been particularly athletic, wasn't very good at, you know, sports at school. 
Um, and I tried not to do anything I wasn't good at. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I, I was in a bad car accident when I was 17. And I started swimming for rehab. And, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be an Olympic athlete if you only start swimming at 17. Female Olympic athletes in swimming peak at about 20. Um, and, but it was, you know, I have to do this to allay the pain, deal with, you know, chronic chronic pain and um and I, you know, I kept going and I kept swimming and I wasn't you know I wasn't getting faster and I wasn't going to win any races and um and then uh in kind of around the pandemic actually around the same time I started swimming um in the Thames uh which runs through uh, or runs down the side of Oxford and um with with some friends and it wasn't it wasn't in any way competitive you're not in a lane um it's just paddling around um and it's freezing <laughs> um and i've started thinking about doing things just because they're fun just because you enjoy it um this friend of mine that i've had this conversation with loves tennis and is absolutely abysmal at it <laughs> but she loves it so why shouldn't she um you know i'm not i'm not winning any prizes i'm not winning any races but why shouldn't i swim mm -hmm. um and I got into ocean swimming when I got here uh, kind of off the back of having started wild swimming in the UK um and you know I have a lot more time now to swim um to be out in the ocean um you know to to take that time to myself to put things in perspective um I'm ocean swimming is one of the fastest growing sports in the country um in Australia, um, and 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 I can see why it it changes your whole mindset. Um, and when you start thinking about a longer life and stop thinking about a working life, um, time in the time in the ocean, time in the pool starts to feel far more important than time at your desk. Mm, yes, I can relate to what you share on so many levels, you know, that there's so many things as a high achiever when I attach a certain outcome, you know, I think about painting, I, I love to paint, but then is the painting hang worthy? Like, how do I just enjoy the joy and the playfulness of creation without worrying about the outcome? And um, I think I have two young sons and I learn a lot from them about their you know kind of wholehearted embracing of of a joyful activity for no other purpose than to feel alive and activated and to feel like ourselves in that moment without one eye to the outcome and the you know the the extent to which that outcome is deemed to be good bad or <laughs> different when we take that pressure off it can really be life-changing absolutely yeah, when you're not when you're not driven by um, profit, and I don't exclusively mean financial profit, but like some kind of profit, some kind of um, acknowledgement, or you know, when you're undertaking those external activities for just for yourself, it really shifts how you approach them, how you approach your day. Um, you know, I read I read voraciously. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about you know seventy to eighty books a year, but it's not. I don't I don't have a Goodreads account, and I don't talk. You know, I don't post about it um and it's it's just for me and it's no longer work <laughs> um which is a real benefit um yeah. it puts the joy back into the things that you love and gives you a slightly richer life 
a much richer life, I would say, a much mm. richer life. And perhaps that's a that's a lovely kind of closing um, question, Chelsea, which is this question of how do we give ourselves, or more specifically, these younger parts, the, the inner the inner children, the little girls inside of us. How do we acknowledge them? Because for me, that's all one thing I've learnt that this this self-leadership practice, which is deceptively simple, yet for me has been life-changing, just these rituals of, of, of looking within and saying to those younger layers of self, I see you, sweetheart. I know this is hard. I know you're afraid, but I see you and I see your goodness. I see your heart. I see how how hard you're trying and how hard you're working and I appreciate you um I recognize you so this almost form of appreciating recognizing caring for these younger layers of self and taking the responsibility ourselves to do that inner work as a way to take that burden off others you know I used to wait for my husband to acknowledge me or you know old bosses or I look for the world around me to pin those gold stars on me and those gold stars were never enough and now I'm I'm really practicing doing that for myself and becoming self-sufficient in my self-appreciation practices and it really has been life-changing for me so maybe Chelsea you might be willing to share when you think about the way you speak to the to the to your the little girls inside of you the younger the younger layers of self that reside within you how do you think about that appreciation and that encouragement what what's give us a glimpse into your inner dialogue around that um I think it's a work in progress honestly um I'm not going to pretend that I've got it. Um, I'm, I'm still very young. And um, I uh, I was put on to um, cognitive behavioral therapy by my therapist um, in Oxford. And we, and, and about self-talk um, primarily. And it was about how do you talk to yourself? And for a long time, I'd berated myself. I, I do. I, um, you know, it's, you're not good enough. You're not fast enough. Um, you haven't tried hard enough. You haven't stuck it out. Um, all that kind of talk um, has kind of been pretty normal for me for, you know, two decades. And it's only, I would say, in the last couple of years, around that time that I walked away, that I made the decision to walk away. Couldn't walk away fully because I had to actually finish the PhD. But, <laughs> but um, I, I was in the process of, of making the, the decision to go. Um, and it was, a, it was about saying it's, it's going to be okay. Um, you know, you're, you're speaking to a younger child. If you stop thinking about them as yourself, how would you treat, you know, your, your, your sibling's child? How would you treat your best friend's kid? What would you say to them? And I think that for me was a really useful way to reframe it because it wasn't uh, my failure that I was addressing. It was the perceived failure that a small child had of themselves. So if you're thinking about that person, it's actually quite useful to externalize them and to, to not think about that, that, you know, that little child as yourself, um, but rather as, you know, in my case, my, my best friend's little girl. Um, you know, I'm going to say to her, you've done so much um, and there's so much more to do, but you don't have to keep doing the same thing. And I think for me as well, part of it was keep doing the same thing and expecting different results because it's not going to make you happy. 
um, you know, you keep plugging away um, and you keep climbing that mountain and the, the enough is never achieved. So, you know, it's that, it's that definition of insanity, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Well, you're, you're not getting different results. So trust me to try something new. You know, when people ask me, would you go back to academia? Um, my initial reaction at the moment is, God, no. <laughs> but, um, but then I think, I never thought I'd live in Australia. Um, you know, I never thought I would swim in the ocean. Um, to the to the extent that I do, I mean, I never thought I'd swim out mm. into the, into the ocean. <laughs> um, you know, come back into Bondi with a shark beneath me. Um, wow. <laughs> on one of the races, yeah, last November. Wow. Um, but but you know, you, I, once you've done that, you feel a lot more like that trust. You know that you can you've, you've built you're building the trust with that younger person um inside you um so i think yeah it's the it's as you say it's the reflection it's that i see you um and it's also the acknowledgement that you're not always going to get it right um you know parents don't always get it right and if you're trying to parent your younger self you're not always going to get it right but not you know not beating yourself up on that either um because it's a work in progress um and moder and i think moderating that self-talk particularly the negative stuff um, you know, think about would you say that to your best friend's child or your sibling's child or your own child? Um, absolutely not. You you just wouldn't. It would be it would be abuse. <laughs> it would be emotional um, abuse. Yeah. 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 The way I've spoken to myself others. in the past yeah. would absolutely be emotional <laughs> abuse if I said it out loud to anyone else. Um, and so I think recognizing that and choosing to look after, you know, that slightly externalized self is really important mm. thanks for sharing that and that that idea of externalizing um, I've written about that in my book but uh, I think that's a really helpful frame for those who are listening and perhaps think well it's it's just too hard it's too habitual to speak to myself in these unkind ways so that idea of externalizing just imagining in that moment your friend's child or, or some child you know or even you know in my book I say if you if you found a, a lost distraught child at a supermarket we instinctively know how to comfort a lost distraught child and these are the same, you know, ways of comforting those parts of ourselves that do feel lost, that do feel alone, that do feel um, perhaps that there's there's something lacking in order for them to be lovable, that we can, you know, build these relationships and, as you say, Chelsea, just play with and learn the language that they're going to respond to the best and it's not complicated language because they are younger parts and sometimes they can be pre-verbal parts as well. So, so, so in that case, it's just this act of sending them, you know, loving kindness within. And the more we practice, the more that becomes possible. And it just takes the courage to begin. Absolutely. I love that idea, the courage to begin, um, because it is scary, right? It's not a, it's, it's the courage of any kind of new start. Um, you know, you've got to fundamentally change something about the way that you've thought for so long. You're rewiring. It's it's incredibly hard. Yeah, overcoming 
our own thinking. And, you know, Dr. Richard Schwartz, who created this, the modality that underpins my work, says that sadly, so many people fall at the first hurdle of rethinking self. And that is that we're not singular in our psychology, we're multiple. There's, there's a core and we all have many parts and that multiplicity is not abnormal. Multiplicity is normal. And I, I, the, I find that heartbreaking that there's, there are people, because Richard has encountered many of them, that can't even open their minds to that possibility. And so this, this opportunity to build relationships with our parts and start an inner dialogue with our parts that cares for them uh, and starts to heal some of the injuries we've sustained becomes way out of our grasp because we can't even open our minds to the possibility that we're not singular. And I, uh, yeah, I think it's all about opening our minds to new possibilities and putting things into playful practice and just see what happens. I mean, what's the worst that can happen <laughs> when we speak to ourselves kindly? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think about this with regards to, you know, the work that you do you know, specifically with leaders. It's so important for leaders to feel that they are, you know, um, stable. Um, you know, so much of your credibility comes from stability and trust and, um, you know, being a steadying hand um but and so and so that can mean that people get stuck um with a way of being a way of thinking um, a way of talking to themselves um, a way of driving themselves rather than um being a person who is sufficiently comfortable with that constant renegotiation and conversation with themselves that they are stable as a result of deep self-knowledge mm. um you know you get stuck you get leaders who are stuck in a particular way of being um, and so, yeah, they're stable, but um, they're not, they're, they're kind of fragile. Um, you know, it's a vase on a shelf rather than a tree in the ground. Mm, I've never thought about it like that, but you're right. Um, this fragility, that it's a stuckness and a false sense of stability that says, I know internally, as you realize, I know deep down, I'm not happy. I know I'm probably betraying who I really am, but I'd rather just stay stuck in this knowing because the unknown feels more, more scary or more destabilizing when actually we know that when we start this inner work, there are no exploding cans of worms. <laughs> like we think they're going to be. They're, they're, I, I've had these conversations with hundreds of leaders and no one's ever completely dropped their bundle and said, well, that's it. Now I can't go to work anymore. It's always been a conversation that's been gentle, that's gone as far as each individual is willing to go. And it's like this kind of gentle illumination of an inner world, which we kind of know exists, but it's been a bit mysterious, this gentle illumination of navigating these interesting characters that dwell within us, these, these younger layers of self. It's gentle, it's slow, and it's so incredibly, I think, uplifting and empowering for us. So I, I hope more and more leaders are finding the courage just to begin to change or to explore that inner dialogue and as you've described, Chelsea, I think step one is just to bring awareness. How are we speaking to ourselves? Mm -hmm. uh, and, our, and how might our lives be different if we started to engage with ourselves with more compassion, more curiosity, more patience, more care? Mm. Absolutely. I think that's really powerful, Cassandra. Thank you so much for all you shared, Chelsea. Um, I would love to stay in contact and 
I wish you all the very best with this exciting chapter here in Australia. And I hope that more and more you just continue to find joy and happiness in your work and in your life. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for today as well. By being true to our deepest selves, we liberate our highest potential and serve the greatest good. As the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity, I am on a mission to help leaders feel more authentically empowered so we can co-create workspaces where people can thrive, perform, play and belong. Learn more at selffidelity.com.